Man, oh man, oh man. I don't know how you end something like that. Sorry, Indianapolis, we have all the good musicians in Austin, right? Right? It's really unfair. You know, like, what it would have been like to be, like, on the New York Yankees a couple years ago, or, like, on Alabama's college football teams. Like, this is not even fun. It's unfair. That's our worship team. Just saying. Come on, 11 o'clock. Wake up now. I'm so excited. I am so excited. I love good news. This is my favorite thing to do. I've been waiting for this time all week, and we are now ending a 32, count it, 32-part series. And I never finish anything, and we're finally come to the end. All right. If you could walk through my garage, or where I park my mowers, or where two motorcycles are now in parts, I told my wife yesterday I have to have a third because now I have two that don't work. Everything in my life is undone, and we're coming to the end of a series. It feels so good and so strange. I want to be honest, it, when I hatched this idea to, for this series, because this is what I do in my spare time while, you know, whatever, I thought it might be a way to fend off the criticism that we only focus on a certain part of the biblical text. You see, we've been critiqued in the past by not focusing on the Old Testament. And so I thought, well, we'll solve it. We'll spend 32 weeks talking about Jesus talking about the Old Testament, and we still ended up talking about Jesus. I don't know what to tell you, except after 32 weeks of trying, we still haven't put the criticism to rest. I'm just obsessed with the gospel. What can I say? I think it's what actually transforms. And so we're going to hover there. And if that's going to blow your mind and you need something else, there's great people in town doing great stuff, but we're gospel-centered here. And I, this is not an apology for that. But at the end of 32 weeks, I've been surprised by some of the discoveries. And it's interesting. It's surprising to be surprised when you've literally spent your entire life in the Bible. Like, I remember, do you remember, Jen, sawdust floor camp meetings with tents where you'd go to church every day for like a month? You guys remember this, right? I'm telling you, I've got more Bible stuffed in my head than anyone should have stuffed anywhere. And so it's so lovely to consistently be surprised. I've learned a couple of things. Maybe you've learned some of these things along our 32-week journey of Christ quoting the Old Testament. Number one, and this means something to authors in the place, Jesus is a wordsmith. He is absolutely a wordsmith. He's often lifting word formulations, sometimes just little two hyphenated words tagged together, tiny little fragments of concepts. And he's, instead of doing full interpretation of the text like we were taught to do in seminary, he's often lifting word formulations, right? And he's elevating them to remind people of what they already knew. So fascinating. He deployed very old ideas and concepts to do the heavy lifting of awakening an audience to a new awareness how God was among them. He does it with simple words. We obsess over perfectly understanding and applying this ancient material as if there's only one surgically precise, doctrinally correct, limited way to apply these ideas. But here's my conclusion after 32 weeks. Jesus is more a poet than a theologian. And that ought to bring us such, such ease and such peace. In fact, he quotes the dramatic, somewhat hyperbolic, often deeply emotional King David, as much as he quotes anyone, he's using words to defibrillate, to paddle, to shock awareness back into people with their own word formulations that drift to them from their own past. I love that about Jesus. He's less of a theologian than he is a poet. I've learned that through this 32-week journey. Another thing I've learned, there's no hiding from good news. It's everywhere, even in the most obscure Old Testament cultural contexts. Jesus sometimes pulls things from 
from places that we'd have to spend 10 weeks understanding the context. The gospel is everywhere. The good news is always about inviting humankind to live a bigger and better story, to quote Gareth Higgins from last week. Jen, you gotta go listen to the podcast. It was incredible. Talking about the stories that we live into. We preserve, by the way, everything we've ever said, which is really embarrassing because 10 years of preaching is still on the web. But anyway, go back and listen to last week. Gareth is a storyteller from Northern Ireland. Somehow the calamity of that space creates a particular kind of storytelling. I'm still amazed at how that architecture of those stories and the seventh story of redemption and liberation really makes meaning of probably everything I've ever struggled to get my head around. And so treat yourself to that. The book is coming out in December if you're interested. But the gospel is an invitation of humankind to step out of the temporary stories that we live in and step into something bigger. Think about it. Rather than offer a new rabbinical interpretation of a text which everyone would have expected from a rabbi, which Jesus was, what he's essentially doing is he's, he's, accenting, he's, he's accentuating new access to the gospel, to people, to new constituencies, to outsiders, to the unclean, and to the outcasts. And this, my friends, is political. Don't mistake this. This is a deeply political move. We miss it if we're not careful. Maybe the best way to summarize it is this. By focusing more on the who, got the access, got, got the, access the 50-yard line tickets to the action and the contemplation of biblical interpretation, Jesus shifts the power center away from the establishment back to the margin where the heart of God has always been. You follow me? All this to say, even though I designed a sermon series specifically to get us out of the gospel, I don't think there's any way out of the gospel. It's the real story. It's the only big story. We tried to go into that greater historic witness, but even Jesus is pulling and bringing the presence of God and the access to the presence of God to new people. It's so amazing. You can't outrun it. It never stops giving life. It never stops breathing. It never stops preaching. You can't get away. It's the really real, y'all. It's the truly true. It's the seventh story of liberation that sets the heart free. And it's the only way to hold together a cosmovision that's Christ-centered. It's the only way. It's the gospel. I will always ride the gospel. I will always side with the gospel over any other story. And so here we are at the end of 32 weeks. And we're also at the end of Jesus' natural life where he literally ex exhales what we call the dereliction cry on the cross. Let's read this passage together. Matthew 27, verse 45. One of the rare places in the New Testament where they actually preserve the, the way Jesus would have spoken in Aramaic. Now, I flunked Aramaic in seminary, mostly because they don't teach Aramaic uh, because it's a dead language. Interesting. Is, isn't that interesting? You're supposed to... <laughs> I guess that's not funny. That was real funny at 9.30, wasn't it, Lindsay? <laughs> Lindsay's my witness. Let's read this. You, I'm going to butcher this, or this little pronunciation because it doesn't matter anyway. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. This is, this is when Jesus is literally on the cross. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. I don't know. <clears throat> Thankfully, parenthetically, it helps us. It says here, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with essential oils or wine vinegar or something like that. He put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. I'm not going to lie. These intensely human moments of Jesus can be hard to make sense of. This is an emotional moment as raw as any we have ever felt. This exhale of desperation is as real 
as any dark night of your soul. It's more than a little unnerving to see Jesus express this level of pain. It's upsetting. These moments humanize God in a way that makes us rethink about how the world works, how the universe holds together. How is it that Christ felt abandoned by his Father on that of all days? How do we reconcile this felt rejection from Jesus' Father? Is he not the one who spent his time trying to convince us that the face of God is love and mercy and forgiveness of all the moments to abandon his son, the one in whom he was well pleased? Why now? Why in the depth of agony? How could a good God do this? Let's think about that for a moment. Maybe this confirms our fear. Maybe God isn't good after all. Perhaps God is cruel. Many certainly have lived like this. In fact, I would say most of us in this room still live that way. How do we know? The moment we blow it, we hide because we know guilt and shame and judgment is coming. Maybe God isn't good. If you think God is cruel, let me assure you that you'll find evidence every single day to prove that conclusion, if that's your conclusion. But Jesus is after a different storyline, is he not? Face it, the majority of us throughout all of human history have agreed on this one thing, that God is cruel and exacting and demanding and harsh. And so we dance and we sacrifice and we perform and we worry through the night watches of the soul and we temporarily relax when it finally rains or when we conquer our neighbors or when our women give birth, but this idea that God is cruel and all too willing to abandon his children persists. It lives in your mind and in mine. Many of us have only this image of God. Some of us are in the middle of stories right now, and we are convinced that God has forgotten us, that he has abandoned us, that he has abandoned us. But let me tell you this one thing that I have learned. It is not in God's nature to abandon anyone or anything. It simply is not in his nature. Now hang on tight. I'm going to push on something that you were probably taught growing up. Maybe this is how you hold the Bible together, so stay with me. You know I like to push. Here's how I heard the passage interpreted throughout my whole life. I heard it said this way. God had to reject Jesus because he was bearing the weight of our sin, of our mistakes, of our capital offenses. God had to reject him. You see, because we screwed things up. Familiar story? You've heard this story. He was forced to send his son to fix what we broke. So we're looking at plan B and God had to turn his face from his son because we had so messed things up. God had no choice but to reject Jesus. How odd when you really think about that. You see, this is built on the idea that God cannot tolerate sin. This is a direct quote from Habakkuk. Anything less than total perfection could not be tolerated by a holy God. Similar life story, perhaps? That's what I was taught. We have a fair amount of scripture written by authors who struggle actually to get their heads around what's exactly happening on the cross. How could it be that the Son of God that we believe is our holy one that was sent from God himself, how can he be left to be tortured and humiliated in public? How could God turn his face? And so Peter and Paul and the writers of the New Testament take their pen to parchment and try to theologize around what's going on. He was bearing the sin of the world, which is interesting because the text doesn't say that. The text says Jesus felt abandoned by God. It doesn't reference any sin of the world on his shoulders. And yet Peter writes in an epistle, he writes this, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for, for, for righteousness. And he, this is his little quote. By his wounds you have been healed. 
Peter is likely distilling what remains of thought from the prophet Isaiah from a thousand years before Isaiah wrote this, chapter 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God. We considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, verse 6, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The church has almost always said the agony was the result of our sin. Theories and rationales for how and why God punished and temporarily turned his face from his son abound. History litters them deeply. We call them the theologies of atonement. They've piled up over the centuries. And all of them have adequate scriptural anchors. Here's my issue with that kind of thinking, that kind of binary claim that God was forced to reject his son because we messed things up. Number one, it paints a picture of an angry God. I don't accept that image of God anymore. I know that not to be true to the face of Christ. It paints an image of an angry God, an angry God who's somehow isolated by the very weakness of being humans the way he, the way he created us. He had to turn his face because we were evil. Yeah, except he made us. Number one, it paints an image of an angry God. Number two, ultimately, it fails to harmonize with what we've learned about God through Christ, which is the most profound thing we have ever been able to process about who God is, what his nature is. It's the man. Christ, it looks like mercy. It walks and talks like love. It's made of forgiveness. This is what we know to be true about God through Christ. And Jesus was strangely okay in the presence of sinners, was he not? He was found most often in the presence of sinners, such that the religious establishment says, there's no Messiah in this one. This is a false rabbi, because look who he hangs with. How can it be that God rejected sinners, couldn't look on them, when Christ moves among us in our places of deepest addiction and brokenness? How do we explain that God made his approach to us, that God ceaselessly and endlessly pursues us in our sin? How can it be? Any decent interpretation of the life of Christ, which we affirm to be the way God is actually in the world, has to recognize that sin was never the obstacle for God's approach. He moved first. You follow me? What ends up being the only obstacle to Jesus is any unwillingness or inability to move past that tragic failure of, of, of imagination that says, God can't move here, God can't touch them, God can't do that, I'm too dirty, I'm too broken, I've done too many things wrong. It's the unwillingness to believe that God can and God will have it all back. That's the story that he's trying to uproot and transplant. So here's my question. What died on the cross that day? What died on the cross that day, if not the myth of distance altogether? This is the good news, guys. And that's my theology of the cross. After six years in seminary and reading all the dusty old books, here's where it, what it comes down to to me, in case you're interested. Jesus didn't die in any final sense any more than you die when you give up your earthly body. There's no finality to the death of Christ on the cross. In a certain way, a certain embodiment of the presence of God died and gave way to another. A certain thing transforms, trans, transfers into a different way of being, but Jesus was as, as eternal as you and I. He was and remains. He died in the sense that he was transformed from a state of being to another, but he very much lives, y'all. What died? Death died. Separation died. Shame and guilt and brokenness as the final terminal category of human value died on the cross that day. 
all lesser stories of violence and power and the protection of an accumulation of wealth died on that dark day. Any lesser story, anything that falls short of love always was going to do whatever it took to bring us home. Every lesser story died on the cross that day. Distance exists in the mind. Distance from God, but not in reality. Small thinking died on Calvary. Wounded imagination died between two thieves, heaven's favorite place to make announcements. Heaven spoke categorically about our supposed predicament of distance. Heaven says, what predicament? What distance? What separation? So what are we to make of a text like this? What does Jesus mean when he expressed deep sentiment of abandon and dereliction? Abandonment is a very real feeling. In fact, I would say it's probably the most primal of all human feelings. It's the one that activates every other thing. When you feel abandoned, when you feel that people turn their face from you, that activates the most ancient assumptions imprinted into our DNA. We feel it viscerally, and apparently so does God. Maybe it signals a much-needed death of a story about distance from God and his presence in our lives. Maybe it sets us up to put those ideas to rest once and for all. This perceived disinterest in our pain, oh, church, trust me, God was very much there with Jesus that day. I believe that Jesus was indeed feeling the most ancient and primal of all human sentiments, which ought to signal something profound for us. This loneliness, this abandonment, this isolation, this being pushed outside the circle. Literally, he had to die outside of the city of Jerusalem. You know the feeling. You're pushed outside of your family. You're pushed outside of your tribe. You know the feeling out of your denomination, out of whatever that space is that brought you into the world. This feeling of being humiliated in public, being left alone and vulnerable, being outed. Many of us feel like that even now. It's been a week, y'all. Can you even remember how the week started? It's been a week. These feelings don't just come and go. Here's the thing. They literally shape our brain. They shape what we assume to be real about the world. They become the foundations of our cosmovision. They find their way into how we see God. And this is what the gospel is trying to transplant and trying to change. Jesus is literally trying to euthanize old views of an angry God and replace them with a bigger and a better story. I don't think Jesus was imagining pain, emotional distance that day. God indeed turned his face from something that day, but it wasn't from the firstborn of his creation. Not ultimately. He abandoned, he rejected, he turned his face away from a storyline that we had internalized that God hates us, that we are nothing less than worthy of punishment. Nothing more than worthy of punishment. God turns his face from something. Yes, he does. From an ancient narrative, from the universal sense of distance and fear, it's time for the story of an angry God who wanted to punish the world with his wrath to fall away and give its place in a deeper story of love. Something that's more true about God like this, that he feels alone like we do, that Christ felt abandoned like we do, that even Jesus understood our fear and our loneliness because he felt it too. But abandon is temporary. It's a temporary state of being. It will always fall into the deeper storyline of redemption. We know how the story ends. He expresses temporary pain of abandon, but God did not abandon Jesus that day any more than God abandons you and I. What's my point? Here it is. The cross is not plan B. 
This was not the required self-mutilation that God had to undergo because for some legal, penal reason, we had blown it and we were out of covenant. No, 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 guys. This was always the plan to demonstrate how far love would go. This is what love actually looked like on that dark day. And this is what love continues to look like today. As I mentioned, Jesus quotes the ancient poet King David. Let me just read it in context, what he quotes. Psalms 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Let me put this as simply as I know how to put this for us today. We're grappling with the humanity of God. Some of you don't even know how to put those two things in the same sentence. You were taught God was so far, so distant, couldn't be approached. He was way beyond your reach. He was way outside of your arm's length. But what we're grappling with, what transforms us, is the humanity of God in this story. His capacity to feel what we feel. His ability to identify with us at our most vulnerable and exposed moments. The scandal is this. His nearness to our need, his proximity to our pain, the intensity of his bodily sensations under the weight of public shame, his momentary thought that possibly God had turned away for good. Because that feeling is not just human, it's also divine. Somehow it's both in today's passage. Here's the good news for us, church. We are not abandoned. We are not attacked. We are not at risk of failing and falling on our face after the week we've had as a community. It might be easy to think and to go back to those old narratives that say, see, it was never real. I was never accepted. I was never welcomed. We never had a voice. You see, I'm always going to be outside. They're always going to pull away. I'm always going to be left standing alone. But guys, we are not abandoned. We are one and we are moving in the direction we are moving in the direction of redemption. Oh, it's so much easier to build a different kind of church, y'all. It's so much easier just to gather people who see the world the same way. Say the same thing all the time and they'll pay you for it. It's an amazing racket if you can get it. That's not what we're building in Austin, Texas. It's been one of those weeks. But abandon is a lesser story than the story of the gospel. Our story doesn't end in humiliation. It doesn't end in separation. It doesn't end in domination. It doesn't end in isolation. If we lean in, and if we listen deep, abandon is real, but it's never final. It's never final. And that's good news for us today. Truly, this is a sentiment of Christ, but it's not his final sentiment. And it won't be ours either. We will rise because he rose. Let's pray. Sweet Jesus, we love you today. Quicken our hearts, open our minds, move, move us, redirect us, awaken us, make us more conscious of your presence. Give us a heightened awareness. Help us release those lesser stories and find our way into yours. You are with us. We are not abandoned. In Jesus' name we pray. Why don't you stand to your feet? We, um, if you've been around a while, you know, or you need this, uh, that we have been actively pursuing 
open doors on the border to figure out how we can be useful. Our bishop gently suggested we might consider how not to forget about our children and our families who are in detention centers even now along the border with no end in sight. And if you've been around a while, you know we've been reading these cards. But Allison and Dr. Jessica Fry were on the border all week this past week for five days. And they went on a long, tedious reconnaissance journey based through McAllen where they saw the almost unrecognizable reality of this country not too many hours from here. The inexplicably cruel and undignified way that people are being treated who are fleeing for their lives because of violence and gangs and drug cartel, turf wars. And so I don't know what to tell you Allison has brought back except that a heart full and a broken heart and some stories and some ideas how we might engage. And so there's a little 85-year-old Methodist minister on the border who works with these refugees as they're being processed and he gathers some stories and he writes them down. And so we have one of those that Allison is going to read. And I just want it to continue to shape our heart and shape our awareness, transform us and make us engage in what's going on around us. And so why don't you read that story and tell us a little bit about it. These are the words of Oscar. Hello, my good Christian friends. I am a 16-year-old Guatemalan male just released from the Port Isabel, Texas Refugee Detention Center. My refugee friends and I refer to it as the detention center. The center's director calls it a prison. We were treated like prisoners, surrounded by two very high cyclone fences topped by razor-sharp triple strings of wire, confined for periods in a very cold chamber by violating rules of conduct, enduring a sleepless night without even a cup of coffee or cold tortilla, being dropped off at the Brownsville bus station, being manacled and leg-chained on the trip from the detention center to the bus station. Yet, I am so happy, despite having been jailed for two years and four months. I am free among new friends who tell me, bienvenidos, welcome, with smiles. We are here to help you. We can provide you with a backpack filled with food and hygiene items, clothes and a blanket for the cold of the bus, help in taking the necessary steps to obtain your bus ticket, free use of our personal cell phones to call your relatives at your destination, and a refuge where you can rest, eat, shower for a few hours, or remain overnight to travel tomorrow. I'm so happy. I'm free. I'm smiling and laughing constantly. I want to sing and dance. I'm going to live with my brother in New York, whom I haven't seen in four years. I know I have to improve my English, which I began to learn these past two years, but I'm good at languages, fluent in Spanish, and two indigenous languages I learned in my beloved Guatemala. I want to become a U.S. citizen. I can't go back to Guatemala, where there's so much corruption and the threat of death if you don't join a gang. You asked me, friend, what my dreams are. Someday I'm going to have a wife and children. 
They'll be proud of their poppy. I'm going to be a social worker specializing with working with children. On Wednesday afternoon, we showed up at the Catholic Charities tiny little room, two blocks from the bus station in McAllen. And because I'm bilingual, I had the honor of sitting at a table with about six other people as we processed the 350 people that had just arrived. You see, ICE releases them without any shoelaces, without any belts, without a bus ticket, and they drop them off at the bus station. And then they walk two blocks over to Catholic Charities. And from there, we talk with them, and we called their family members and explained to their family members how to buy a bus ticket. And we welcomed them. We got to look in their eyes and say, welcome. And as I stood at the door, I got to walk with one single mom named Roxana. Roxana had traveled all the way from El Salvador with her children that were three and five. She was completely lost. She had a bus ticket, and she had a manila envelope that on one side in English said, I don't speak English. Please help me get to the right bus. And on the other side of the manila envelope, it read, McAllen, 8.15 p.m., Houston, whatever time, Alabama. She had all the stops marked down, but she had no idea that that meant a different state. She didn't know what that meant. That was Wednesday. I left her off at about 5 o'clock, and she wasn't going to get to her family in Miami till Friday at noon. And all she had was some snacks that the center had given her and her bus ticket. So I got out my phone, and I let her call her family member once again to tell him that she was on her way. It was in their, those people's faces that I saw Jesus. Not one of them was fighting. Not one of them was pushing in line to get to a shower or to get a cup of the hot soup the sisters had made. In fact, when I showed up at the bus station with Roxana, there was a long line of about 50 other refugees in front of us, and they looked at me and they said, you go first. And they let me pass to the front of the line with Roxana's baby sound asleep in my arms. I just want us to remember the Oscars and the Roxanas today. So it's one thing to be reminded that we are not alone when the depth of our choice today was which car to take or which restaurant to go to lunch at. But they are not alone either. Oscar's not alone. Not for one second, not for one second, is Roxana out of the presence of mind of a divine God who wants good things. Not one second. And so our active open question as a faith community is this, how do we engage? I can tell you how I'm going to do it. It's just clunky and awkward, but we're probably going to drive down to San Antonio next week perhaps, and we're just going to stand in the bus station with a fully charged phone, handful of $20 bills, maybe some food, and maybe just an open face and a bright face. You will know when a bus full of refugees drops off at a Greyhound bus station because they are panicked and afraid and vulnerable, and they don't know where they are. 
And maybe that's how we can be the feet of Jesus. If you can get all the way to Houston, it's a much larger hub. Maybe that's where we go. They don't come through Austin very often. Maybe we find a way to partner with, what's his name? Jim Pace, an old preacher who should long be retired and sitting on his porch, who's in the muck and the mire and the fray, recording stories of broken people. But we are not alone. We are not alone. But it's our job to show that to each other. It's our job to engage that conversation. We are not alone, but we feel alone until someone smiles and says, can you, would you like to call your family? I don't know what we're gonna make of all this. Honestly, it's been too much to process. There's just so much. There's just so much to it. There's so much to it. It feels like Germany, you guys. They literally bottleneck, corral these people and make them sit on a bridge for days. Just for days. While the cartels and the traffickers and the coyotes pick them off. They just make them sit. The indignities of it is almost inconceivable. Alison goes to Haiti at least twice a year. Now she goes to Peru once or twice a year. And she says, nothing has impacted her like this because this is right here. It's right here, you guys. And we don't know this story. Stand to your feet. I want to read a benediction that was written by Mark Williams. Maybe we're going to do these every week. We'll see how long we can get, keep the poet going. But Gareth inspired me last week with a beautiful custom reading. And so here it is. These are the words as you go out into your world. Beloved dual citizens, may your Messiah, who never won mayor of Nazareth, comfort you. May your king, who rode a donkey in his own parade, ground you. Do not look for your savior in a granite tomb, a glass tower, or a marble rotunda. He is risen. He will be found with the women grieving, with the men fishing for their lunch, with the fearful hidden in rented rooms. And if you don't find a savior in any of those places, know that you have been sent in his place. Go and make peace. Blessings.